0: So our Bible reading this morning comes from John 11, verses 17 to 27. So John 11, verses 17 to 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. "'Lord,' Martha said to Jesus, "'if you had been here, my brother would not have died. "'But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask.' Jesus said to her, "'Your brother will rise again.' Martha answered, "'I know he will rise again "'in the resurrection at the last day.' Jesus said to her, "'I am the resurrection and the life. "'The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. "'And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. "'Do you believe this?' Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world.
1: Well, we uh, started on uh, last week on a a series uh, called New Life, and it's leading up to our Easter program, an Easter uh, series uh, that is leading to find out what this new life really is about a new life in Jesus. And, and um, when I was dating Solari, we had come to the stage where we, we knew we were going to get married. <laughs> we knew it was going to happen. And uh, Solari had all these expectations about how this was going to happen. Uh, she expected that there would be a big limousine, that there'd be the suit and tie, that there'd be uh, a beautiful dinner and that somehow I would present a ring in a most perfect fashion. Um, she wanted the bells and whistles and I knew that. So for me, if I gave her that, it was not going to be a surprise. And I'm all about the surprise. So I thought, how am I going to surprise my future wife, my, how am I going to surprise her in this, this time? So I've learned that uh, 20 years on from our, our, our marriage that I've learned that it's better to go with the expectations, but um, for me it's a surprise, but anyway. So we, uh, we went on this four-wheel drive trip. Now, Solari had bought me this trip for Christmas, and I thought, what better way, she will not have any idea that I'm going to propose to her on this trip, because she's bought me the trip, and I'm going to use it to propose to her. I thought it was genius, um, But but... I, we, we went all the way to Craig's hut. We've got a, a picture of Craig's hut coming up. Beautiful space. If you've ever been up there, it's just totally beautiful. And so I got her on that rock that you can probably see in front of you. There's that rock. She stood on that rock, and I was in front of her, and I had the, the ring in my hand, ready to go. And uh, all of a sudden, ants started crawling up her leg, and she didn't like ants, and she's freaking out, going, I oh, want ants, ants. And so we're brushing off the ants and getting her down. She's off the rock now. I'm going, this isn't going to plant. It's not going to plan. Anyway, so I comfort her, and and as I'm comforting her, I pull the ring out in front of her and say, will you marry me? And her response, really? (laughs) So it took her a few times to realise I was serious, because I'd (laughs) utilised a way that I found was a surprise to her, but for her it wasn't actually up to where her expectations were hitting. Um... Finally she said yes and 20 years later we're still here um, and I still haven't taken her on a limo uh, ride so sorry Solari, at some stage we'll do that. <laughs> but this morning we're going to see that, that Jesus didn't always strive to meet the expectations of those around him. In particular the expectations of a few of his closest friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. This morning we're going to see how Jesus' interaction and his failure to meet human expectations actually points directly towards God and God's greater plan for us as humans. This story is all about ways in which Jesus surpasses people's expectations, overturns people's expectations, and in the end exceeds them. What, what Jesus does for Lazarus sets in place the beginning of the end for Jesus. It becomes the last straw for the religious leaders who were already sort of having a close eye on him. Because straight after this event, they start to plan his murder because of the threat that he uh, poses for their power and their security. It even results in Caiaphas, the high priest, saying in verse 50 of John chapter 11, you do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole, whole nation perish. They're profound words, really, aren't they? Especially when we see the end of the story. Because through this latest sign that points people directly to who Jesus is, we not only see how God is working, but we uh, we get a picture of how Jesus' ministry is going to come to a, a grand conclusion. Last week we talked about Jesus healing the blind man, and I might have jumped the gun a little bit, and I said this is possibly Jesus's greatest achievement. Uh, well, it was definitely one that hadn't been done before, um, so that in that way it probably was. But but raising someone to life is a, a pretty good achievement, isn't it? I wouldn't um, bat my eyelids at it. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a precedent. The, this had been done before. In Scripture we've got Elisha, Elijah, I mean, who raised a, a boy back to life from after death. Then we have Elisha who had the double blessing of Elijah and he raised two people back to death. Well, he sort of did. He, he raised one and his dead bones raised one and in 2 Kings 13, if you haven't read that story, it's a great story, um, it says uh, sometime later a man was being buried but as that was happening a band of raiders were spotted so the body was just thrown into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched the bones of Elisha, the man came to life and stood on his feet. (laughs) How amazing would that be? That's pretty awesome. So Jesus wasn't setting precedent when he raised Lazarus back to life. But obviously raising someone from the dead is going to bring in some scrutiny. It's going to cause a scene as such especially from those who he is threatening. So this morning as we explore John chapter 11, and I encourage you, if you've got your Bible, Sarah, your phones, open it up so that you can follow through. Uh, Sarah read part of what we're going to look at, um, but we're going to look at most of the chapter. So I encourage you to get your Bibles open and have a look through it. And we want to see the signpost. Um, we want to ultimately understand that the sign points to new life that we find in Jesus, who has pulled us out of death and given us this new life. Let me pray as we start to look into Scripture now. Our God, we just ask that this morning that you'll be with us as we seek to understand Scripture more, and seek to understand it for who we are, and seek to understand it in a way that opens our eyes to you, that you may bring us new life through your Word. Amen. So, if we break down the text of uh, John chapter eleven, uh, and our Bibles do it pretty well, it's broken into four sections. And we'll take a quick survey through three of those four sections as such, as they sit in Scripture, and we'll sort of try and tie it together at the end. The story starts fairly unexpectedly. We hear of Lazarus, of Bethany being ill. And John tells us that Mary is the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil in in verse 3 of chapter 11. If you read the book of John for the first time and you're reading it through, you wouldn't have come across that yet, because that actually comes a little later in John. But it gives us an understanding of who these people are, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're important to Jesus. John wants us to know that they're important people to Jesus. The message sent to Jesus in, in verse 3 says, Lord, he who you love is ill. And the message wasn't a question for him to, to stop and come. It, was, it wasn't saying, Jesus, well, if, if you want, you can come. It was the expectation that he come. It was the one he loved. It was this brotherly love that would mean that if he's sick, you'd come. That's the expectation. Jesus would come. He was only a a few kilometres away. He wasn't that far away. It's like the doctor saying, he's he's on his deathbed. You might want to come now. The sisters assumed assumed that he'd get the call and he'd just go. And We read in verse 5 and 6 of um, John chapter 11. Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That's confusing. If Jesus loved them, surely he'd go. Did John the writer get it wrong? Surely it should read, Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus. So he jumped on his horse, drove, rode the two kilometres as quickly as he could and sat beside his good friend Lazarus and actually healed him at that time. But it says, it says that he stayed two extra days. And if we're reading the text right, in these two extra, extra days, we don't hear about anything else about Lazarus. It's two extra days of, of silence. He doesn't say anything really to his disciples or anything. We can only assume that he he probably didn't even send word back to Mary and Martha. Maybe just silence. Did Jesus not care for his friends? Did Jesus put other things in front of his friends? Did Jesus just not care? Does it feel the same for you at times? Especially in, in these times. Perhaps you're part of the many who are wrestling with what it means to not be able to work whilst we are having to isolate. Or you've lost your job already or your your wage has been cut. And for the first time in forever, you're you're starting to think about what does it mean to join the Centrelink lines? Or what does it mean to provide for my family? Does it feel like your cries to God for help are just not being heard? See, when we cry out for God's help through sickness and nothing happens, what does it mean? Does God just not care? But I want to tell you that Jesus didn't adhere to the expectation and the will of humans. Rather, he, he wrestles with what his father's will was. Was it right to go to his friends? He tells them why he doesn't go yet but it doesn't help the people in the situation. Jesus says this. He says um, he doesn't go so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's all about the sign that is being pointed to. The disciples make a good case why not to go back. It was where the Jews had tried to stone him. He'd be walking back into some sort of war zone, maybe. Perhaps Jesus knew this. We just don't know the answer. But I get the feeling that Jesus saw a bigger picture. And after two days, Jesus makes this call to head back to Bethany. And, and he has this little funny interlude in verses 9 and 10, talking about uh, light and, and darkness. And last, last week, we talked about Jesus being the light. And he adds it in again. John adds, it, adds these uh, little verses in in verse 9 and 10. It says, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. For they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Seems a funny sort of thing to say in the midst of going back to see Lazarus, who is now dead or fallen asleep, as the scriptures say, but he's dead. But it's a kind of crucial verse in the whole chapter because it, it seems to be saying, you know, if you're going to walk on your own, you're going to trip over. But if you stick close to Jesus, If you look at an impossible situation through his point of view, even if it means blindly pursuing a path that you never thought you would, or giving something to someone that you never thought you'd give away, or having to wrestle with the confusion of illness and sickness, not understanding or not knowing the future, Jesus says, walk close to me regardless. Jesus has a greater perspective. In the end, you're going to end up in the right place, walking alongside Jesus. I remember going on a camp when I was in the UK with the local school. I used to do a fair bit in the local school. And I didn't know all the kids that I was looking after on this camp. Um, But we went on a night walk on the first night of the camp. And the thing about this night walk was we weren't allowed to have torches. Only the, the head teacher who was the leader at the time, he had the torch. So he was leading the way and we all sort of followed in the dark. The kids, they had to stay right close to one another and right close to us as, as leaders and we had to link arms together so that the, the people that were following the light would stay close to the light and we would follow along closely. Can you imagine what would happen if one of the, the kids decided that they would uh, just branch off and go their own way in the darkness? They're just going to stumble. We're in the forest. They're just going to stumble and fall run into the trees, get into all sorts of danger. Yet, as they stayed close to one another and close to the leader who had the light, they made it back safely. They couldn't see where they were going, yet they made the decision to trust in the one that could see where he was going. You see, coming back into the story in John 11, before Jesus even gets to Bethany to see his friends, he's asking his disciples to do exactly the same thing. Understand who I am. I am that light. Now follow closely. So from the first section of this passage, we learn that God calls us to follow him, even when it seems that our expectations may not be being met. That's what discipleship is all about, isn't it? To follow. To follow regardless of your understanding of the situation. Follow. Jesus is calling us to do that. Now we move to the next section of John chapter 11 and on to Jesus' famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they will die, will live and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. They're amazing words on their own, aren't they? Words of hope. But let's put them into context. Those words were spoken to people who were hurting, who had just lost their brother and they were sitting in the, well, if only... If only. If only you'd been there, Lord, my brother would not have died. I wonder when the last time you said if only. I say it way too much. If if only I had have stopped and asked that person if they needed some help. If only I didn't make that financial decision. If only I hadn't clicked that one more time on my computer. If only I'd kept my cool. If only I'd shown them more love. If only I hadn't said those things and could draw them back. If only we'd left five minutes earlier. Unfortunately for us, back to the future hasn't become a reality and we can't change the outcomes of the past no matter how painful they may be. But here, when Jesus talks to Martha, he doesn't say, let's go back in time and change the situation so that this time the outcome will be different. And if you don't know back to the future, that's the whole premise of it. <laughs> Rather, instead of going back, Jesus invites Martha to, to look to the future and imagine how that future will look as she lives it out right then and there. He points her to what is going to happen. Verse 23 says, Your brother will rise again. Now being a Jew, she understood the teaching. She understood. She was a good, stout Jew. She understood it was standard for Jews to believe in the resurrection on the last days. Where Isaiah 65 and 66 talk of new heavens and new earth. A new world without pain and grief. A place where God's people will be brought to new life. So Jesus saying that a brother will rise again. It wasn't exactly new for, uh, for, for, um, for them. However, Jesus invites Martha to consider this future as a very present reality. And he tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I will be. It's going to be all right in the end. He says, I am. I'm going to orchestrate it. I'm going to make it happen. You're going to understand today. The resurrection is... It's not, a, it's not a future event. Rather, it is a now. It is Jesus. It's a fairly outrageous suggestion. And he's asking Martha to, to reconsider her understanding of who Jesus is right then and there. You need no longer to say, if only. Now all you need to say is, if Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is. If I have followed all the signposts and I understand that Jesus is the Messiah, then life will be different. If Jesus is who we faithfully believe him to be, then our attitudes have to change towards the miraculous acts of God. Do we really believe it? If Jesus is who we faithfully believe him to be, then surely our prayer lives need to be full and overflowing with hope. If Jesus is who we believe him to faithfully be, our expectations of God and of what God will do right here on earth right now will never be disappointed. Rather, we'll wait in anxious expectation of what God is going to do right now, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. Right now, we're in the middle of the most uncertain time our generations have ever faced. Loss of jobs, isolation, fear are the words that come out. Our media tells us of how bad things are. Maybe there's not going to be enough supplies. We need to stock up. All of these things bring a sense of what if or if onlys. Yet Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not I was or I will be, but I am. In our story, we don't hear Martha's response to Jesus' words. She believes, but we don't know what impact it had, other than we move to the next part of the story. But in our uncertain times, in Martha's uncertain time, Jesus reassures her of who he is and who he is pointing to. So firstly, in John chapter 11, we heard the call to follow Jesus regardless of our own expectations. Next, we hear that our our present, our now, is impacted by a future hope of who Jesus says he is. Therefore, our expectations of God should be based upon our future hope, not our present circumstance. That gives us hope. That gives us hope to live today and not wait until tomorrow. In this third section of the passage, we see Jesus move into town and he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And this is where we get to the verse that Jesus wept. And we see the compassion of Jesus at work. However, I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what Jesus crying at Lazarus' tomb might have said to Mary and Martha. Still in the if-only stage. Jesus, it's your fault. You could have saved him. There's no point crying about it. You weren't here. You, can't, you, you could have come, you were told, but you didn't. We might want to look at Jesus' crying as a sign of the fullness of Jesus as a human. Fully God, yet fully human. And Indeed, Mary and Martha, they knew he was different. They already had that in their mind. But they would have still recognised him as a living, breathing human being, just like themselves. However, as Jesus engages with Mary, who asks that same if only question, he begins to weep. I wonder as we look at Jesus with tears pouring down his face, whether we just see a human, or if we're taken back to the start of the book of John and remember that this human is the Word, and the Word that was with God, and the Word that was God. The word that was spoken and brought life into creation is the very same word that is stopped in this intimate setting, weeping with his friends. We've already explored that God sometimes has a different perspective on things, doesn't meet our expectations. He doesn't, he doesn't um, always bring us what we expect at a time that we expected. it. And God's justified in doing that. He sees a bigger picture but maybe we need to change our ideals of God. Perhaps we have a God who can see far beyond our human eyes, but we also have a living word that cries with the pain of his people. This story could have very easily been one of a straight shooting Jesus, walking into town, uh, trying to tell him, telling people stop crying. Don't you worry, I've got it under control. Lazarus isn't dead. He's just having a, real, a bit of a snooze in the back there. Um, done his thing, brought Lazarus back to life. Everyone's happy. Jesus goes on his merry way. He could have done it that way. <clears throat> but that's not what's happened. Even though he knows what is about to happen. Even though he knows his father's will is to bring Lazarus back to life. There's no sense of triumphalism on show here. There's no swagger or strut about Jesus as if he's the main part of the the equation here. Rather, we find Jesus in all his knowledge becoming a man of sorrow, relating to the grief of Martha and Mary, sharing that sorrowful moment with them, not from afar, but right next to them, full of tears. I wonder if that changes the way that we show compassion. Even though you may see beyond someone's challenges, do you stop in the moment to be with them, to laugh, to cry, to celebrate with them? Or do you go to the next stage and the next part? In this moment, Jesus teaches us the art of care. I wonder how you care for those around you. It's telling you, isn't it? So God sees a bigger perspective. God calls us to base our present upon God's future hope because we can't always see his picture. And God says, be beside one another as well. Yet within our blindness to see the bigger picture, God comes right beside you, crying and rejoicing, comforting and protecting not aloof, not holding a bigger perspective over us, saying, if only you had a better eyes to see. Rather, he just says, I'm with you because I love you. My tears are with you because of your tears. My hurt is with you because of your hurt. Jesus stands with us through every circumstance. There's so much we can learn about Jesus and his interaction with others in this story. However, we haven't even got to the crux of the story yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. in verses 38 to 46, we have this heartwarming account of Jesus calling Lazarus out of the cave where he'd been placed in the last four days. Jesus stands in the midst of the crowd that was gathered, those following him, those there to mourn, and they watch Jesus' uh, tears coming down his face as he orders the stone to be rolled away. Martha's expecting some sort of a stench, but there was none. There probably should have been four days of a dead body. Yeah, it probably started to smell. And then Jesus prays to his father and calls Lazarus to come out. Imagine being there that day, seeing this happen. Watching a dead man walking out of the cave with the wraps sort of being unwrapped around his face and his hands and his feet. What a moment. It would have been eye-opening or inspiring it let everyone know of the power of Jesus and everything now points directly to Jesus being the word that John talks about at the start of his at the start of his gospel Jesus is powerful to save you see in raising Lazarus he actually is also calling forth his own death We read a little further into the chapter, the religious leaders were threatened. They were intimidated by this, and fair enough. Everyone would now believe in Jesus, and their leadership is being challenged. So their solution will have Jesus killed. You see, Jesus brings life to Lazarus, but in this life, it means that death is coming for Jesus. Yet his death is enacted right here in the story that Jesus must die in order that he may also rise again, defeating death and bringing life, a new life, not only to one person in Lazarus, but to all who believe in the name of Jesus. His power is on display here, and it's just a foretaste of what was to come. And it seems that Jesus is starting to prepare himself for it, but also to prepare everyone else for it as well. You know, it's a powerful act. It was not just some human deed. Rather, this was the Son of God pointing towards what some of them had already figured out and knew, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for. And I hope that in Jesus we see this same same Messiah, the one who brings life through his ultimate sacrifice. So today, I want you to remember these four things. Follow Jesus, regardless of your own perception or expectations. See, Jesus sees a greater perspective. Our now is impacted by a future hope in who Jesus says he is. Jesus calls us to live out that future hope today. Jesus stands with us in every circumstance. And Jesus is, and always will be, powerful to save May this week, may you find time to spend with your Saviour. May this week, you may, may you find time to remember the hope that we have in him and the hope that he brings now and into our future. May this week, you hold on to that hope, even when you're feeling alone, worried, scared, isolated. Because Jesus is powerful to save and to act. He puts his arm around you and cries with you and rejoices in our blessings. Jesus is powerful to save. Let me pray. Now, Lord and God, we give you thanks and praise that you show your power in this story, but you remind us of what it means to be close to you what it means to live for you and what it means to rely and trust in your power when you see a biggest perspective so Lord may we today and in the coming weeks trust and closely follow you especially as we head towards Easter and we remember The death and resurrection, may they be a lived out reality to us right now. We thank you, Lord. Amen.